0: I'm Tim Richart.
1: And I'm Michelle Boland.
0: And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast.
1: More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, we have the most interesting man alive, Dr. Seth Oberth. Now I give him that title because Seth is one of those rare individuals who is extremely well read in a vast amount of subjects and always gets me to think a bit differently. Seth is a doctor of physical therapy with a degree from Ohio University. and He was originally trained in sports physical therapy and he currently holds a certification in strength and conditioning. He currently has a personal practice in Atlanta, Georgia, and works with all types of patients with a particular interest in chronic pain, trauma, and complex issues. He's an avid reader and also teaches a seminar that I highly recommend called Stress, Movement, and Pain, and you can find out more information on that on his website linked in the show notes. Seth's approach is unique. He teaches people how to regulate their bodily systems, to retake control of their own function and become more self-aware. He states that humans are walking ecosystems and in order to function properly, we must learn how to integrate the body and mind, something often lost in modern day culture. His philosophy is neurocentric, meaning that the nervous system is a main regulator of not only our thoughts and movements, but even our physiology. In this episode, we will dive into the following topics. Points of intervention and self-regulation and defense responses, the importance of low heart rate work. We discuss topics and goals such as unobstructed self-expression and attunement. Consequences of Not Managing Energy and Variability, Exercise in Relation to Sensations, My Personal Experience Working with Seth, and His New Interest in Exploring Light and Water. This is a very interesting episode, and we hope to make Seth a regular guest. So without further ado, here's our episode with Seth Oberst.
0: We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes, the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, Performance goals and equipment availability each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly So you always know what you're supposed to be doing We'll chat on zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video Feedback via email take a major step towards your mental and physical health today Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now back to the show.
1: Welcome to the episode with the most interesting man alive. Seth, so happy to have you on today. Did you watch the Super Bowl last night?
2: Uh, I thanks for having me on. I did watch it just a little <sighs> bit, kind of intermittently.
1: It's not the answer I was expecting, see? So interesting. Always keeps people on his toes, you know? So Seth, um, you know, I'm pretty for, familiar with you. You know, I've gone to your uh, amazing, very interesting course. Um, I've worked with you in the past, which I really want to talk about a little bit and how that experience was. But can you, you know, provide some information for the listeners about, you know, explain what self-regulation is, what you do in your practice, kind of your view towards maybe ex- past experiences or necessary responses of experiences, stress and emotions can be, you know, represented in movement or pain. That was a lot there.
2: Yeah, so um, I think the first question that you had for me was what is the, you know, how would I define kind of self-regulation and and why does that maybe matter? Uh, So, you know, I define self-regulation as the ability to associate intense sensations in the body with a feeling of safety, mastery, and autonomy. So what that means kind of more practically is, can a person sense accurately what is happening both in their body and outside their body and not be overwhelmed or shut down by that experience? Because what I find as a, so I'm a physical therapist and I have an in-person, you know, I I own my own practice in Atlanta, Georgia. And, and I deal with a lot of people with a wide variety of different presentations. And one of, there's kind of several underlying themes that, that um, I have found to be consistent in terms of, of their issues is the lack of ability to regulate their system. And, and so they can't, they can't sense accurately what the heck is happening in their body, and so it makes it very difficult to come up with an appropriate and diverse range of of behaviors to manage accurately what's happening. Or and so and so, one of the main kind of themes that we're working on is improving that that tolerance or that and widening their threshold for for acceptable experiences that don't overwhelm them.
1: That's very, very accurate. Um, So you talk a little bit about like uh, defense responses. What are the two ways or two types of defense responses?
2: Well, I think it's important to, so, so it's important to, to keep in mind why, you know, how our system evolved in order to manage the environment, both internal and external. Right. And so, if you take a single-celled organism like an, you know, an amoeba, and you, you know, poke it, you, know, you can think back to the paramecium that you went, and, you know, eighth you learned about in eighth-grade biology under the microscope. If you were to somehow threaten that organism, right, either put something toxic in the in the petri dish, or you were to, you know, poke it with a, a pipette or something, what you'd find is that that organism would enact a defense response. You know, it would change its shape, typically withdraw, maybe make itself smaller and compress, right, in an effort to uh, protect itself. And what's interesting is if you were to repeatedly do that, it will contract or compress or escape an active defense behavior stronger. And that defense behavior would last longer with subsequent, um, you know, threat threats. And so there seems to be some sort of way that this, you know, even single celled organism is remembering this danger and trying to protect itself. So we as you know, more advanced, I'm using that kind of in air quotes, uh, species of mammal, as mammals, we have developed our own defense responses in an effort to protect us. And we can do that in a variety of different methods, right? Some, some people respond when they perceive danger and I'm happy to talk about what that means to perceive danger, but when they perceive danger, they may go into more of an active defense response, which we would sometimes kind of coordinate or correlate with uh, fight or flight behaviors, right? Other other humans and, and high level mammals may respond to the perception of danger by shutting down or kind of collapsing. And we would look at that as more of a you know, kind of sometimes correlated with a uh, freeze response. And I think that there's actually different, I've observed there's different types of freeze, freeze responses. Uh, and so we would call that more of a passive response, right? In which the organism in an effort to protect itself, rather than devoting more resource, rather than activating more external resources, you know, to, to contract muscles, to, to flee, may actually try to conserve energy by shutting down, right, and we see that in um, you know in a variety of different kind of animal and human studies, but some would call that the dower response or or hibernation type response, and that's an energy conservation mechanism that the organism is trying to do to
0: keep itself alive. Uh, Seth Tim here. First of all, thank you so much for being here. Big fan. Yeah. Um, I just more more of a comment than a question, but we had two individuals that are kind of in the medical and performance realm in the NBA on recently. And one thing that we kept talking about over and over again was this notion of emotional variability or psychological variability that um, in order to be su- a successful athlete on the professional level, you have to have both the ability to you know, turn it on in a in a game environment and then kind of turn things off in order to ostensibly regulate oneself, recover all those things. So I just, I, I think it's very interesting, like you, I know a little bit about your practice and you work with folks that are in you know, chronic pain, like the, you know, a lot of times, like not, not the highest level of performance, but there's these overarching concepts and, you know, Michelle and I termed this the more train, less pain podcast, because these are sort of the, the concepts we want to start to get at that this need for psychological variability, emotional variability, movement variability is kind of omnipresent no matter what rung of performance, no matter what type of human you are. Any thoughts with that?
2: Yeah, well, I totally agree. And I would argue that it's actually all one. I would actually argue that that continuum of variability encompasses all aspects of a person. Right. So I, I, I feel like I can make, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying that now you may have individual differences in how this is regulated, but metabolic variability, psychologic variability, movement variability, all the different kind of substrates that you're naming all exist on a continuum. And I think they're all inter interdependent. And, and the goal is really that those that, that we're restoring variability across the systems in an effort for a person to uh, achieve what I always want a person to ultimately achieve, which is unobstructed self-expression. I want a person to be able to to be and do the best version of them that they can be. And in order to do that, fundamentally that's their, their bottle biological systems have to be in some measure of coherence. I I like that. That includes that, you know, in, in, and as a substrate of that variability must improve within certain bounds. Right. So we can have too much variability, but I would argue that that's actually also a response to, to threat. Um, and we want that variability within, within a, a a balance that that's manageable for that person. And so whether they're a professional athlete or, you know, some of the folks that I'm working with, which does still include professional athletes, but is largely your kind of, um, you know, more kind of regular people, so to speak that, uh, they all have to have these same variables. You know, I would argue that all living organisms have to have variability.
0: I think uh, unobstructed self-expression would be a really nice name for like an indie rock band, perhaps. Oh, I
2: think so too. <laughs> Absolutely. I,
0: you know, something that um, Michelle and I have talked about, which I, I see a lot of parallels here, like this notion that this kind of antiquated notion that there's bad posture, right, that the, that the body would sort of position itself in a maladaptive way for no reason, just in like kind of a senseless, purposeless manner. It's my dog growling, go lay down. Um, but things like an anterior pelvic tilt, which could be a really nice strategy for, you know, maintaining anti-gravity position or getting air in. It seems like a lot of these things that you're talking about um like the active defense response the shutting down they are strategies that in the right context are incredibly useful so i was hoping I, w- I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the interplay between these strategies being useful in certain contexts and then how they how they tend to run amok and develop into problematic things in the long term
2: i think it's a great question and i'm 100% in a, in, a, in agreement with your hypothesis so you know your I think it's helpful to think about this. Your body, in my opinion, does not make mistakes. I don't think organisms make mistakes. I think they try to come up with solutions, right? And so sometimes the solution, whether it's a postural change or a, uh, you know, a respiratory change or a perceptual change, those are all efforts to solve a problem. And what I mean by when I say solve a problem is either Uh, complete a task or keep that person alive. Right. And so what I say is that, you know, everything you're, so this is what I like to tell my clients is that everything your body is doing is exactly what it is supposed to be doing based on what you have experienced in your life. So the question then becomes, how are these experiences, whether they're explicit or implicit, meaning you can remember them or you can't. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter what those experiences are to me as a physical therapist. You know, I'm certainly not particularly interested in the narrative and the interrelationships relationships of, you know, emotional emotions behind it. What I'm mostly interested in is, is how did whatever happened, if we even can know what happened, create these patterns of protection and how can we put you in an experience or give you new experiences that update your model of the world such that you no longer need those patterns to go about your day. So if I perceive, let me, just, let me just give you an example. If I perceive the world as dangerous, right? Maybe it's dangerous right now, right? There's certainly lots of reasons for some people to feel really in danger in our current environment, right? Then I'm going to, across all my different biologic systems, use specific patterns i'm going to reduce options right so i'm going to reduce variability so that i can respond accordingly to these to that to that danger so maybe for someone it's you know when i and of course when i say you know they're not actually co- creating this consciously but subconsciously they may bite their teeth together and hold their breath and for a moment that helps them feel slightly better than the alternative So the nervous system remembers that experience, right? I mean, we call that, you know, capturing and and that occurs in a variety of different areas in the brain, particularly interestingly, and it seems like in the basal ganglia in the limbic system as well, but there, the, the nervous system holds and captures what it felt like in that experience. When I clenched my teeth and hold my breath because I stayed alive. So the next time that I'm faced with a very similar experience I'm going to do the same thing without even thinking about it. And then over time that becomes the baseline because what we see is that as variability is lessened, as I have have fewer and fewer options, I have less and less ways to manage that threat. So I just, it becomes my go-to. So I just do it all the time, right? Without even being aware of it. And so, so I think that that's really what we're talking about here when we say people get
0: stuck,
1: deterministic can't wait to talk about free will later
0: okay, go. probably the the more stuck an individual is the more for lack of a better term collateral damage they're going to have to being stuck i would imagine i'm just trying to well it, i
2: think it's easy to think about this you know sometimes it's we, we too often use like the exa- analogy of a car but imagine that you can only drive your car at two at two you know two different miles per hour 20 miles per hour and 80 miles an hour Right. You can probably get somewhere, but there's going to be a lot of damage in in how you do that. You're either going to go way too slow or way too fast. Mm -hmm. And the reason we have a gas pedal that smoothly goes up and down and a brake pedal that smoothly goes up and down is so that you can very accurately gauge how fast and how slow you approach something. Right. If our biologic systems don't have that same sensitivity, then we're going to struggle. And there is going to be, I think, more collateral damage. And this so, is one of the things I'm just going to soapbox for like one second, if you'll allow me, Michelle, please. Is, um, you know, one of the things that really bothers me is that you'll see in the, especially from medical practitioners. So phys- you see this a lot from physicians, although some PTs as well, well, they'll say, you know, the body maintains a pH of between 7.3 and 7.4, or, you know, the, you know, we have only certain amount of, of oxygen. You know, oxygen will only go out a certain range right? Or CO2 will go only go out of a certain range, you know, in terms of our our oxygen or carbon dioxide saturation. And for most healthy people, that's true. But one of the things that I think is really important that's often missed is how much, how many resources is the body using to maintain that homeostasis? So yes, on your measures of whatever measure you're looking at, it looks like that person's in homeostasis. But we would both agree that if i'm driving my car like a maniac gas brake gas brake and i get it to the you know to the house at and you know it takes me 10 minutes to get home and tim it takes you 10 minutes to get home but you smoothly and slowly apply the gas and the brake you're much more efficient at getting there even though we arrive at the same time over time we would agree your car is going to last a lot longer than my car and that's something i think is really missed in the in the healthcare world in my opinion is Is yes, we can. Most people can maintain homeostasis, but at what cost? I want to make it less expensive to maintain homeostasis.
0: You've clearly never been in a car with me, my man. (laughs) Um, No, I I can't help but thinking. You know, and we're, we're both physical therapists, so we both see things through the same kind of like like base level lens, but then you have this like whole other sort of autonomic, like psychological kind of like way of, of thinking about things. And like, I can't help, but thinking about like the structural correlate to what you're saying, like, you know, there's a lot of people that lack hip extension that will then create hip extension via anterior hip laxity, or like, we see the same thing in the shoulder with like the posterior capsule. And it's like, they're getting to the same end table test result that we want. They're demonstrating the passive range of motion that we want, but it's in a manner that's far from what we would deem acceptable, useful, or helpful to clients.
2: I completely agree. And I'm seeing that all the time on the table, right? You know, or or we see it, I I see a lot of folks with craniofacial pain and how much they'll wear down their teeth in an effort to unlock their mandible, right? So it's like, I can breathe at night, but in in an effort for me to breathe at night, I've got to, you know, blow through my teeth, posture, my TM, you know, my TM joint anteriorly and over time destroy my own tissues, but Hey, I can breathe at night. So I don't need any help. Right. It's like, there's, there's a lot of, 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 um, things that the body will compromise on in an effort to hold several things very dear. Right. You know, so it's, 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 it's a task oriented system, not a muscles and joints oriented system.
1: Love that. Jeez, dropped a dime right there. So this is, this is kind of how I'm thinking about it. And I want to know what you think in terms of like the points of intervention. So we had a previous guest on Eric Smith of the Memphis Grizzlies, and he talked about the book, the vital question and how uh, energy is the origin of life and everything ties back to energy. Now um in your course manual, you, I mean, I picked out one line, it, it was like the chronic, excuse me, chronic stress Stress is energy intensive with more psychological, physiological, and physical effort. And when you talk about defense responses in terms of active or passive, what you're really talking about is being able to conserve versus use excessive energy. So would you say that like, you know, your points of intervention are affecting or storing variability within one system or the the ability to use energy in that system effectively and that kind of carries over to like other systems.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the goal is to really ultimately affect energy production in the system. And in order for us to do so, we have to, and from my perspective, we have to fundamentally look at where is effort which I kind of look at as somewhat of a proxy for energy, uh, where is effort being excessively used or underused? And I don't mean effort like you need to try harder. I mean, how much intensity is it taking for you to manage day-to-day functions? Because the problem with, uh, you know, so the big issue with some of the passive patterns, right? Meaning the, the people who kind of go into collapse when, when threatened, these would be more like folks, um, just as for a clinical reference, Typically, not always. These are your chronic fatigue, uh, myalgic encephalitis, um, uh, fibromyalgia, type folks. Um, although you can see that certainly in, in lots of others, you know, more of the depression kind of patterns. Um, lots of lots of GI dysfunction. Although you can certainly see that in the active defense category as well. But one of the things that that's kind of misunderstood is that. These people are unfortunately quite often labeled as lazy, you know, careless or not working very hard. Right. So it's like, you just need to get in shape is what they're often told. And, you know, and that's something I made my mistake in early on in my career is, is saying, well, we just need to bring more fitness to your life. But ultimately that's true. Fitness can be helpful for, for these folks, but not early on because it's more, it's only perceived as more danger. And so what we often have to do is, is actually help that person conserve more energy because the, the misnomer here is because a person looks collapsed and lazy, et cetera, that they're, they're not using energy effectively or that they're not, they're not willing to expend energy. But in reality, they're not using energy effectively because they're using a ton of it just to get by day to day. Mm-hmm. And that's why, like, look, for example, I, I think this is one perfect example of look at these folks on The Biggest Loser show. Right. So what happens is they, they go in, they tend, obviously they're overweight, they're pushed really hard. They do lose weight. Right. But their system has not really ever learned how to more effectively manage their resources because a lot of these people are in, and my argument is they're in a passive defense category before they even show up. Nothing's been done to address that. So now you've just loaded on a ton of allostatic load onto this person. They can manage it for a while because you put them in a caloric deficit, but over time, their, their system goes right back to, I've got to pull everything out of every calorie I get because it's it's dangerous out there.
0: So this ties into one of our questions that, that we sent to you before the show. And I'm kind of going to like just soapbox on it because it's something I've been wanting to ask you since I met you a couple of years ago. Um, there's quite a few people in my life that are near and dear to my heart that are physicians in training in residency. And these are people that are, you know, chronically overstressed, chronically underslept. And yet most of them still want to train and they still want to train as hard as they did when they were in medical school or when they were in college. I was hoping you could talk about the situation that you were just talking about in which you have this like sort of maladaptively overstressed individual, like the, like the fibromyalgia type of individual and how you would think about them exercising or not exercising, and then potentially contrast that with the like medical residency sort of appropriately overstressed, but still massively overstressed individual and how, how you might think about exercise prescription for that individual.
2: Well, I think I'll, if it's okay with you, what I'll start with is the is the, the medical resident, just to give a framework. So one of the things that I find, cause I see that a lot too, right? Um, a lot of fe- people that are, you know, clearly highly stressed from a um, practical kind of everyday life situation, but they're still wanting to train or push themselves even harder, out, harder outside of that, that, you know, um, stressor. And what they will often say when you ask them is, I'll be like, well, why are you pushing yourself so hard when you're clearly overtaxed? And they say, well, I don't feel like myself unless I exercise, right? Or it's, it's how I deal with stress, which is a bit interesting to me because uh, you're applying more stress to, deal, to, to have less stress. Um, now, I think there's some, certainly I'm not here and I don't want anyone to leave here thinking that I'm advocating for less exercise as a general rule but we have to think about how it's applied in the context of this person. So if you look at a medical resident type situation, right. And by the way, it's just fascinating to me to think about the fact that uh, we would go through and Tim, you went to, to PT school, which is, as I did, is, is quite stressful in its own right. Right. And, and, you know, there's, there's a lot on it on your plate, maybe not as, certainly not as intense in, in terms of the hazing as you see in, in medical school, but <clears throat> Uh, what you find is that it's like you're going to these things to, to I, ostensibly help people improve their health, yet it's probably one of the worst decisions you'll ever make for your own health, right? And I think the patterns that we learn uh, in those graduate programs are really problematic for our ability to connect to other people. But that's an aside. If, if someone's in, in this example of, of in medical school residency and they're constantly hammering themselves psychologically, and then they go and ham- hammer themselves physiologically uh, with training, what I often get concerned about is, is the desensitization of the individual. So what you're really finding is that they're using training hard to actually feel less of the intensity that they're feeling every day. It has a numbing effect, right? And, and that's part of the endorphins and the sympathetic chemicals that we secrete out during stress, right? I mean, during a stressful ex- exercise, for example, cortisol, you know, it's an, it's a potent numbing agent, right? In terms of not numbing like Novocaine, but I mean, numbing in terms of dissociating from our sensations, right? That's part of its role. So one of the things that we really wanna work on for these folks is not to take discourage fitness, but to encourage fitness from the context of increasing overall sensitization or sensitivity of the system. Because they're, they're essentially numbing out and they're using more exercise to numb out and that therefore they require more and more
0: exercise to numb out. I'm going to kind of hold your feet to the fire here. Yeah. What what exactly does that look like? Does that look like prescribing more low intensity aerobic work instead of like the higher intensity distance running or CrossFit that like these individuals tend to self-select for? Yes.
2: So one of my main goals is that I want you to do as much work as possible under a certain heart rate threshold. I want you to get more done with a lower heart rate, not more done with a higher heart rate. Mm -hmm. So we'll have people I'll, you know, and that may look different for each person. Uh, A lot of times that just means going for a walk tip almost always outside. Uh, You know, we do a lot of, we can, we can challenge things through breath work. I'm happy to go into more specifics on that. If you like Uh, it can be still resistance training, but I want to keep stress, the stress system lower. Right. And, and there's a couple of different ways that you can look at that, but I try to keep people around, uh, under at or below 120 to 130 beats per minute heart rate and, you know, do as much work as you can. But if it goes above that, you've got to, you've got to slow down until it comes back underneath. And what's That's... amazing as you do that is how much, how much more awareness and interoceptive capacity you're building, because now they've got to pay attention to actually what's happening inside their body, not just how much Um, external weight they're lifting or, or their, their speed on the, you know, on the track or whatever they're training for.
0: And and I can't help but think like, uh, I, I think about myself and then also my fiance and we're, we're both people that enjoy endurance type of things, but we're both people that really struggle with keeping heart rate intensities under even like 150 beats a minute. I'm a reasonably fit individuals, but I think that that, it's kind of like that framework, that scaffolding that you outlined is sort of, you know, maybe it's what got us in our professions, the ability to turn up and do high output type things. But it's it's left, and I'll just speak for myself, like it's definitely left me with with a fairly impaired ability to do work at that like 120, 130, 140 without letting it really just get away. And, you know, now now things are burning, now I really feel things, you know?
2: Yes, well, right, and I think, You know, this is, I think one of the major problems that there's lots of major problems that modern healthcare is facing, but one of them is in order for you to achieve the high level that you have to achieve in order to provide, be a healthcare provider. In other words, you have to do a certain, you have to get certain grades. You have to be able to basically deny your own intrinsic uh, stop signs that are saying, Hey, this is too much in order for you to get, to be a healthcare provider. Then once you've you've basically trained yourself at desensitization, then we have these people who come in with really profound issues and we can't relate to them. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the, the kind of undertakings in my own life has been I've always, I think, had this intrinsic sensitivity, but I really learned through PT school and and kind of that whole process to desensitize myself. And once I've learned to find a happy medium there, my ability to connect with clients and really understand their their complaints and their issues it is markedly much much higher. Um, a, so I think that's that's part of what we're dealing with here.
0: In, in a in a previous podcast, I've heard you say something to the effect of, and forgive me because I'm paraphrasing here, but you can only take patients as far on the journey as you yourself have gone. So I would, just to play devil's advocate here, I I would offer that potentially the experience that you and I had in PT school or in really stressful, you know, contexts, it it at least gave us that initial struggle that we've had to overcome. And it it at least showed that, you know, we're like, it gave us that starting spot on the map. We didn't get spit out as these incredibly Zen, perfectly self-regulated, you know,
2: no, absolutely, and and I think one of the things that I have found in, I think perhaps a misnomer that some some people have I think have 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 um, uh, un- misunderstood about me, and I'm not saying that you're doing this um, at all, but is that fact that I think we should avoid. There's this idea that I think we should avoid stress. That, far from it. In fact, it's the opposite. Stress is the the um, furnace that kind of hardens our. our our ability to recognize when we are under stress, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I need to feel stress at a really, really high level in order for me to realize that I don't want to feel that, that intense all the time, right? And, and so it's like, you have to have, you have to have boundaries on either end. You need to know, I I think all people need to know what it feels like to be extremely and extraordinarily relaxed. And I think all people need to feel like, what does it feel like to be extremely and extraordinarily stressed so that you have this wonderful threshold and, and spectrum inside those boundaries through which we can feel, uh, experience daily life. The problem arises when we hang out only at one spectrum or one side of it, right? Or if we think about this wide spectrum and we're only hanging out on the upper third or the lower third. Because what we find is life tends to uh, come around and and center around those experiences. So if I do anything, if everything I do is very low stress, eventually stress finds me anyway, because things are going to push me out, life is going to push me out of that very small, that very small, narrow comfort zone, right? But on the other hand, if all I'm doing is hanging out in a high stress experience all the time, I'm going to miss all these wonderful things that life has to offer at a lower level of intensity,
1: I think most people, you know, lack the self-awareness to understand where they are in that spectrum. And in kind of that relating to, you talk about the importance of low heart rate work, you know, a lot of people do that type of stuff in a distracted state to avoid those sensations, right? So like they go for a walk outside, but they're listening to, you know, music or a podcast to try to remove themselves from where uh, their current state yes
2: <laughs> i totally agree um the in terms of do people lack the self-awareness i i think that they do but we have to go deeper than they never got to learn it i think most people didn't really ever get to learn it i mean think about how you know the modern life is it, we are we are so at odds with with the natural course of things that what we're really doing is passing down to our children, how to be desensitized and overwhelmed at a very early age. And I'm seeing younger and younger kids show up, showing up into my office um, with this profound lack of ability to regulate even basic, seemingly basic biological functions and it's certainly not because it's their fault. It's the way that the the entire system is oriented to kind of distance you from your own internal um, state of regulation. And so if you think about our, our early experiences, if my early experiences in life are oriented around self-preservation, and uh, lack of attunement, even if I'm very externally comfortable, right? So mom and dad buy me everything I want, but they're missing the basic biologic need of paying attention to actually what I need, then I'm going into the world as a young adult now with no sense or reference for what it means to actually be self-aware because no one ever taught it to me because the people in my life didn't know it themselves because that's how their parents treated them, right? And so you, you would get into these cycles over and over, and then of course these people come become come into, you know, positions of power, and then they they you know put in, you know, so there's all kinds of, of layers of this. Um, and so I, I think it's not necessarily so much about self-awareness. I mean, that would be great if people had self-awareness, but I think in order for you to have self-awareness, you have to have self-regulation. And there, you know, most of us don't get the opportunity to learn adequate self-regulation, despite often the best intentions of our, of the people around us that are raising us.
1: Two questions off of that. First, can you define, you know, for people, um, attunement? And then the second one is, you know, part of what I got from working with you is basically a self-reflection of, you know, tools that I can use if I, you know, if, you know, the world ever freezes over and I raise a child, like how I want to, you know, create these things in their life and, and provide them with a sense of like how to act in the world, um, discover who they are as a person, you know, um, learn, you know, all the stuff that you're talking about. Um, So can you talk about maybe what it looks like when you work with some of those kids that you're referring to or or at the younger age individuals?
2: Well, so I'll answer the first question first, which is what does, how would I define attunement? I mean, I think it's really pretty simple. Mm -hmm. It's the ability to be with a person and pay attention to what they're doing without judgment or distraction.
0: It sounds very easy.
2: It sounds very easy. I would say it's probably the hardest thing that most people have to do. And the, the way everything is set up right now, it wants you to be distracted. It's begging you to be distracted. It depends on you being distracted. So, you know, to attune to something else is, I think, the greatest act of love that you can give it. Um, so what does that look like in terms of me working with clients? Well, I'm a physical therapist, so that means my physical presence and paying attention to what their body is actually doing on a level that they don't even know it's doing, right? And then, so then we bring it into the field, right? We bring it into the room, that that thing that it's doing, and we just bring gentle awareness to it. Hey, I noticed that that's, um, I noticed that when you go to do a squat, you bite your lip and hold your breath. Did you notice that? Well, no, I didn't. Well, what would it be like to do a couple more squats and see if that becomes into your awareness too? Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, right? So now it's in the space and then, we just see where it goes, right? So um, it's something that we're doing, I'm doing with clients all the time, but it's not always the direct thing. You know, there, we, we, ha- we do real biologic, you know, you know, mechanical and neurological interventions. We don't just, I don't, believe it or not, I don't just sit there with people in an in a in-person session and just say, hey, I noticed you're doing this um, for an hour. Right. We bring it in the context of everything else. And what you're doing is you're literally rewiring how a person functions in the environment. Now to your other question, it's like, how do I work with these kids who have a really you a know, pretty, pretty considerable um, dysregulation? Well, we have to really look at what's, what's getting in the way of regulation. And that may be things like their airway. So if they're breathing through their mouth, they're going to be in a state of physiologic stress, regardless of how much I pay attention to them. So we've got to we've got to make a, amends to that, uh, and teach them how to breathe through their nose, get their tongue in the right position. Uh, if something's compressed in the rib cage, we got to open it up. If it's something expanded, we have to compress it. You know these kind of basic fundamentals of of compression and expansion. Um, if they've got primitive reflexes that are still stuck, which almost always they do, then we've got to get them. Uh, not so, you know, stressed so that they can, you know, we, so we can integrate those. So we put them in positions in which their body can feel more regulated, safe, safe. And so they can, they can get those primitive reflexes more regulated. So you, you know, um, and that that goes on and on, right. I mean, it's, it's kind of your, I think you're really good fundamental uh, physical therapy stuff, which we can of course dive into deeper, but uh, we've got to get the right, we have to create the right constraints so that their system can self organize in a different way. In other words, I got to put them in the position so their body can figure it out. It's not just show up and be really nice and attuned and and pleasant to that person. Although that is a requirement, that's where it starts, not where it ends. And, and this I think, is... you know, I think that's, that's, that's something that people are just taking for granted Um and they go after all these mechanical or neurological problems and they forget the attunement piece. But I've also seen the opposite, which is, oh, if I just show up and be myself, it doesn't really matter what I do. I would argue that that's that's wrong too. It's gotta be, I think the best case scenario is both.
0: And and this is where it really kind of gets me on my soapbox moment. And I've heard you talk about something similar in previous podcasts, but you know, this notion of like the physical therapy mill, like how most people experienced physical physical therapy in 2021, the United States that, you know, they're going to be, working with four other patients at the same time, the physical therapist is doing documentation as they're, like it couldn't be a less attuned environment. And if there's anything that I hope that our listeners get from this episode, any one tidbit that they could pull out, it's this concept of attunement. Cause the first time I met you with that course three years ago in the week leading up to us recording this and probably in the week following us recording this, like I've, I've definitely, I've been, you know, my best partner to my partner, been been the best friend I could be to my friends. And I've really felt like I've been showing up more for my patients just because I had that concept so freshly ingrained into my mind.
2: It's critical. And I think you're right in terms of of the traditional physical therapy or any really modern, you know, traditional medical practice of any kind um, is so backwards from the laws of nature that it's bound to fail. It will fail. It is failing. And Um, and so I think we've got to really ask ourselves some difficult questions about, is this a sustainable model for all people involved, the patient and the provider, because I can tell you, it feels just as icky for the the provider too, as it does for the, for the patient. Um, and, and so if you can show up in an attuned way, the dirty secret is, is that you're going to be so much better as a clinician, because you're going to notice the biomechanics, the pot, you know, the, the, whatever you want to call um, you know, what we're all doing. And I think we're all kind of doing similar things probably in terms of our movement work, you're going to notice those things so much, uh, you know, so much more easily and effort effortlessly than being super distracted and having an agenda.
0: And and this is where, you know, I, like a lot of people will ask me, how could I get to a place where I can charge $149 an hour for a patient interaction when, when they're used to getting paid? Like here in Colorado, it's like 30 or 35 bucks an hour, right? And it's the secret sauce is exactly what you just said. It's, it's the fact that without the attunement, I don't know how much any of it matters. I don't know how, how much any of it is all that different from looking up shin pain or knee pain on a YouTube channel.
2: I completely agree. And I would, I would say, Tim, that most people are paying you for that attunement. In the context of the exercises and hands-on and all the wonderful things that you're doing, that matters not nearly as much if the clinician is horribly misattuned. And I if can. we think about every single master in any field that we've really studied, right? They all have one, they have multiple kind of common substrates, but one of them is they are passionately attuned to what they're doing.
0: And it makes me think about, um, you know, one of the books that you hear recommended most frequently in like entrepreneurial circles is, is da- the Dale Carnegie, um, what is it called? I'm, how to, like, win how to Win Friends, and friends and and People. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which is essentially a plus to both of you, by the way, um, <laughs> which is essentially like in in a sense, it's like, it's social attunement. Like it's, it's, it's don't be a dick. It's learn a person's name, learn their children's names, like actually to, to an extent that's appropriate for the context of your relationship and mesh yourself in their life, in their existence as much as you can. And the really quick, really quick, really cool thing I wanted to bring up, and this is a little bit out of context, but it's, it relates to this attunement thing. And I heard you mention this in a podcast you did back in 2019, but so with attunement comes, and I looked into this because I couldn't believe it, like resonance of physiologic systems. So two mm-hmm. people that are that are sharing the same space, like the conventional example is like, you, know, you have like two women living together and they sync up their menstrual cycles, right? Mm-hmm. But like you have a syncing of heart rate, of brain patterns of like, and that is like to me, like things that can be biologically tracked, object, objective metrics that change just by being in physical proximity with an individual and that's i mean it's 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 mind-blowing i was talking to a colleague the other day about you know with all this pandemic stuff there's been a big push to get into telehealth and do like online movement consultations and i've like i, I it's a service i offer i'm not going to turn around you know turn away money at this point in my career but um i think it's really really hard to get that same attunement to get that same resonance to get that same connection and I find myself not really wanting to market those services or advertise those services. I'd rather double down on making these meaningful in-person connections. Well, I
2: think that it's the video is better than none. Right. Uh, And I do think that what I have found is that you can attune to a pretty good level on video, but not as much as you can in person. And so, you know, it's all about kind of trade-offs. But what's interesting is how uh, you know you can have you can have this experience where um, you know I, I use this a lot in my courses where I can be in another room, not be able to see the front door, but I can tell when my wife comes home from work if she's had a good day or a bad day, and I haven't seen her face or interacted with her at all, right? And so, so it's like, there's this, there is this interesting um, kind of shift in the energy field in a, you know, in a person's, ex- you know, in the in-person inter- in interactions that occur that are, that are changing our biology. And if a person feels misattuned on a, on a kind of a deep level, you're going to miss a lot of things. And so that's, what's the beauty of being in person.
0: I I love that. And we were talking a little bit before we started recording, I think all three of us have dogs and all three of us are somewhat recent dog owners. Um, but you know, you were, you, it just makes me think of like, I see a lot of people struggling with puppies, like the first three months or first six months. And you know, they're, they're yelling at a dog and looking at their phone or they're like yelling at a coworker and yelling at their dog. And it's like a lot of life's problems, dogs included can be solved by like, You know fully attuning fully being present fully trying to experience what that person is feeling what that person is going through absolutely
2: and you know i think there's you know and i would even say the old the old uh i had a nickname for my for myself in like pt school and early in in my career which is ortho jones right like i was mr orthopedic and um it's funny because i would have laughed at all this and said this doesn't really matter just what are their special tests and you know what are their biomechanics? And those things matter. I mean, I don't think the special tests matter, but the, you know, how a person moves matters. But what I can say is, is that, you know, dogs are a perfect example of, of what we're really doing with each other. Also, you know, you think about why you're frustrated when you get a puppy, the first couple of months, you guys are literally speaking two different languages puppy speaking dog language that he learned and genetic has genetic, you know, of course he's a dog. So he has the genetics of a dog, but then he's also learning the interaction from his brothers and sisters and his mom. So now dog comes into human land and you guys are trying to learn the same language together. You speak a different language. And so what, how do you get a dog that's really well-trained, a dog that you and the dog, that you and the dog are well attuned. You guys are one, you become one, your nervous systems resonate and become one, right? That's what should be happening with every session of our clients and our patients. We're trying to learn the same language. And maybe some people, we speak very close to the same language. Other people, we speak real different languages, but the goal is to try to learn the same language.
0: Makes me think of, um, kind of the, uh, Oh, the, the thought the thought just escaped my head. Um, yeah, it, it'll, if, it, if it comes back to me, I'll bring it back up. But I I, I wish our listeners can see us on video because Michelle and I are going to have sore necks from nodding so much when you're talking. Perfect. Awesome. Love it.
1: I think that all explains how Bence and I are are one now.
2: <laughs> but you had to go through that kind of trial and error, right? Uh oh.
1: I was terrified in the beginning. But I think it it all does go back to that because you know I was like, you know, I don't, I don't even what
0: I, I, I thought it of it. Yeah, I, I, I thought of I thought of the thing. No, it makes me there's a corollary between, you know, a lot of people when they're frustrated with their dogs, they take their dogs to the trainer, right? Like they send their dogs away Elsewhere. to be trained by another individual, purely passively on their end. And that to me is the same thing as my body hurts. I don't want to learn why. I don't want to learn to interface Mm -hmm. with my body. I just want to lay on this table and have you fix me. It's this, like, please just passively solve this problem. I don't want to become more attuned. I don't want to become more resonant.
2: And that has a price. And the price that that has is you'll never live a full, unobstructed life. It's It's that simple. You cannot bypass these things. And I think that, you know, one of the, one of the this is why th- this work is only going to become more important in the years to come. The more distanced and technologically addicted we become, the less we're able to
0: do this. And so the
2: people who can, they're the ones that are going to shape the
0: future. Maybe um, less ortho Jones, more self-regulation Jones. That's right. That's right. That's right.
1: False. Awesome. I like so re- kind of related to this um and i think especially in maybe your line of line of business you talked about not being truly really interested in the emotions behind it do you think there's kind of the struggle with the people that you work with because they think that you're gathering information from talking about the emotions behind what they're feeling and uh the state of their body, while you are gathering information from their subtle physical expressions and the words related to the state of their body. Does that make sense?
2: It does. Um, You know, it's interesting. I I haven't really ever found that to be too much of an issue. Mm. I'm very upfront with people initially that um, our work is physically and physiologically oriented work. And I, I draw that boundary very early and I try to be very clear about that early on. And so I don't find that that comes up. Sometimes people have emotions, right? Because Mm -hmm. they're human beings, but that's just, I look at that as an output of the brain in response to a shift in one's uh, physiological state, right? So it's the, um, you know, I I have not found that to be particularly an issue.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Well, Jeez, Seth, I'm over here. This is the best. <laughs> um, so, what are your current? How to switch boats? What are your current training habits or or passions currently?
2: Physical training, like what am I doing?
1: Yeah. Like,
2: yeah. So, um, well, a couple things. So, I <clears throat> am really into the influence of light on my physiology and the influence or the interaction between light and water. And so a lot of my, I would say training has been around uh, optimizing my own circadian rhythm and I'm trying to think of how deep we wanna go into this stuff.
1: Uh, As deep as possible. (laughs) As deep as possible.
2: and, and really opti- So optimizing my circadian rhythm and my light environment, as well as, as basically I'm in a big kick for how can I be as healthy as possible? And so the way that physical training has played into for that is, is I want to heat up my tissues so that I can structure the water inside my cells. And, I am okay with doing that in a variety of different ways, as long as I do not lose variability. So I have a tendency towards compression, right? So I've got to make sure that I can do as much work as possible without getting overly compressed, right? Now we all have to compress in order to maintain some load, but it's when that gets stuck. And that comes back to what we were describing earlier about this spectrum, right? Um, So the other kind of thing that I'm really interested in in terms of a personal uh training I guess what I would call it is is really in the past whatever this has been now nine or ten months 11 months uh this idea of of not only self-regulation but sovereignty like where do I begin and the rest of the world end and how do I really start to attune to my own internal uh needs even if it goes against what other people think is right for them, you know, for them. So I know I realize that's somewhat vague and and maybe we don't go down there too, too deep into that, but, uh, that's where I, that's where I'm at with this. I am really going at my training rather loosely. And I mean, loosely is not sloppy, but loosely meaning, uh, I'm really into this phase of accum- accumulation, right? I think we go into accumulation and consolidation phases in life. So we, I learn a bunch and then we consolidate that. I'm in an accumulation phase right now and where I'm just doing all kinds of random stuff. See what works. So I,
0: I have to do my due diligence yeah. according to the bylaws of this podcast. Sure. L- literally, what was the last workout you did? Yes. Like-
2: Yesterday with my wife, we did uh, a kettlebell workout in which I did front rack our uh, front rack squats uh, you know double kettlebell we did uh close grip pushups or uh, uh you know uh, close grip pushups
0: we did pull ups and uh we did turkish get ups did you attempt to cap intensity did you guys have heart rate monitors on or was it just kind we did of not have things? heart rate
2: monitors on we just did uh we had a timer
0: for 25 minutes so okay. this, was an, this was an output day. This was kind of like a I would let the tiger more, out of the cage. Okay.
2: That's right. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. How, um, this is a topic I'm incredibly interested in over the past six months because it's something I find myself playing around with, with my own training. How are you monitoring your uh, loss or retention of variability and or this, this notion of being over compressed? Like, are, those, are you self-monitoring movement? Are you, what, you, what are you doing?
2: Uh, I'm self-monitoring movement. Yeah. So I'm looking at your basic positions or my wife is also a physical therapist, which is very helpful. Um, but we will just check each other's range of motion, similar to very similar to the table tests you're probably doing.
0: Have you found one or two specific ranges of motion that really tightly correlate with a loss of systemic variability for you?
2: Uh, glenohumeral internal rotation. Interesting. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to lose internal rotation. Uh, particularly at the shoulder, also at the hip, if I'm overly compressed.
0: I mean, you're talking to a guy who has like 15 degrees of hip IR in a good day. So I get Perfect. that. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. But so,
2: so I, I monitor it that way. But I'll, I'll be honest, you know, the other things that I'm really moni- – the, the other way that I'm looking at it is um, – and I know this is a really kind of probably soft-minded way of looking at it t- to some of your audience. But how do I feel? do I feel like really pushing it hard today or do I not? And, and, you know, it's interesting. There's been some interesting correlations between uh, looking at how a person would rate vitality, the sense of vitality as a really interesting correlation or um, between, between overtraining. Right. So it's not necessarily so much how, you know, how, how, and that's interesting how people interpret vitality, but um, I, I really look at like, how, how vital do I feel right now?
0: It's um kind of interesting. It makes me think of like the dragon eating its own tail. Like oh, the Ouroboros. We... Sure, sure. Yeah, I think it's a
2: snake, actually, isn't it? But, or is it a
0: dragon? Uh, c- c- hey, could be. You're, you're you're the expert, my man. <laughs> um, but you know, in in the pursuit of accomplishing movement variability and movement outcomes for our clients, we will have them do movements and then constantly check and recheck their capacity to move and I wonder if that doesn't in some ways increase system rigidity and increase people's perception of fragility because they think that if they do one more set than you know they ought to or they do things in a slightly different way they feel slightly more like back with a deadlift that then like now okay now they're overcompressed, now they're invariant. And I think Michelle and I have talked about this in regards to our own training. Like We both like to deadlift heavy with a barbell. We recognize that if we do it four days a week at 10 sets of like 95% one RM, that won't be a good thing. But there's a certain value in just doing the thing that makes us feel fucking alive, just to know that we can and that it won't blow us up.
1: We will be back after this quick message. Are you ready to start lifting heavier, outlasting others, and moving like a gazelle? Oh, you better get ready for the endure and repeat 20-week training program coming April 5th, 2021. Not only will the program include large amounts of program writing educational content, such as an overview explaining progressions and training concepts, but the program will also help you start prioritizing your own fitness training consistently with sustainable strategies while getting yoked, and using trackable metrics to watch yourself progress. And the program includes videos for every single exercise to avoid you scratching your head about what you're supposed to be doing like other training programs out there. If you're willing to put in the work, this will be the most rewarding training process you have ever embarked upon. Head over to michellbowland-training.com to learn more, and now back to the show.
2: Absolutely. Well, that comes back to, to what I said earlier about we want a wide variety of, of experiences such that we have a, a very wide spectrum, right? From one end of being super relaxed and one end being super stressed. And when things are going well in life, it's a great idea to stress yourself with lifting or really he- doing really heavy deadlifts, right? Maybe not such a great idea for a person who is. Uh, you know, just coming off of a flare of MS. Right. And so that's where this individualization really has to occur. And in order for that to do it, that's a relationship between the trainer or therapist and the client. And really speaking, it comes back to our conversation about the dog. It's about having, speaking the same language. It's not necessarily so much about obsessive testing to the point of pathologizing.
0: When you start to observe yourself losing glenohumeral internal rotation, are there interventions that you either increase the volume of or introduce, or is this really more of like a, okay, I'm going to hold off on heavy training. I'm going to make sure that my sleep quality is on point. Like with your own sort of, you know, whole existence, how do you manage that?
2: Well, it's what you just mentioned. So certainly I'm looking at, okay, how can I take care of myself, particularly if I'm losing it and I haven't been doing a lot of physical stressing. Right. So, you know, I haven't been, you know, maybe it's a couple of days, I haven't trained much, but I've been really busy at work or I've got to catch up on all these notes or emails or whatever. Then I'm going to do, make sure that I'm doing more of the lifestyle things because I know that the physical demands are not that, are not the thing that's compressing me. Right. Versus if I had just gotten off of, you know, uh, you know 10 sets of 10, you know, German volume training, Delos, and then I'm, then I lost all my IR that's a different, in my opinion, that's a same physiological response, but a different way that we got there. Um, so I'll, I'm, I'm going to look for, if I've done a heavy, you know, more challenging training, then I'm going to check, I'm going to be doing more corrective type movements to put myself into that position. Right. So I'm going to be getting some, uh, you know, expanding different areas, whether it's restoring pump handle mechanics at the sternum, or restoring upper dorsal rostral space, or or what what have you. Yeah. So I think it depends on 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 how I got there, which is going to inform me on where how I need to improve. And the cool thing is, I think there's lots of different ways to get better.
1: Yeah, we talked about like the different points of intervention, and exactly, we we all do maybe things a little bit different. Yep. I'm kind of interested in, uh, your routine with the variable of light in your life.
2: Yeah. So basically I see the sunrise every morning and then I put my bare feet on the ground.
1: Don't you have your shirt off too?
2: I try to. Yeah. Sometimes, uh, so I normally try to go for a walk, uh, in shorts and a t-shirt, regardless of what temperature it is outside, although it's been a little bit tough. You know, you know, relatively stuff. I live in Atlanta, so it's never really that cold, but you know, it gets mm-hmm. below freezing. Um, the, and then I don't, I don't expose myself to artificial light before sunrise or after sunset. I have an infrared sauna that I do every morning for 20 minutes. And, uh, which is awesome. I'm trying to think what else I do. Well, I wanna. Yeah, I, I wanna. Say that
0: I, I wanna ask a quick follow up, just because <laughs> there is probably going to be people listening to this podcast that have known me for quite some time, and and definitely younger in life, I was known as the shirtless guy, uh-huh. and I I think there was a little bit of ego to that, like back in my like late teens, early twenties, but it's something I've kept up. I don't think because of ego, but because there's something. To that sensory experience or something to the so I'm just curious like Michelle just men- mentioned the shirtless thing like what like is is there something not biomechanically but like energetically that's going on there
2: well I mean you are literally absorbing light into your into your system
1: so Don't you exchange light with people and your environment as well
2: so what's interesting is humans actually give off light they actually mm-hmm. we actually produce light yeah and so I actually think that one of the main reasons that manual therapy feels good, but we can't necessarily verify it through the lame, emphasis on extremely lame ways that they've tried to study manual therapy. It's pathetic, what they the ways they study it. But one of the reasons that I think manual therapy feels so good for people and, and patients will report it's so helpful for me, but PTs will argue that it doesn't work uh, is is the fact that you are literally emitting light into that person Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and so you know think about all the infrared energy that you're giving off and we know how important infrared is to structuring the water moving water into fourth phase right inside your cells we know that that actually helps to move fluids right fluid has to move that's how we you know when we create if everything was a gel nothing would move right so we have to move water into gels and out of gels and we do that with, I think, uh, infrared. And that's why that's, I don't think, I know we do that with infrared, but that's why it so, feels so good to put hands on people. Yeah. You know? And I think that's probably what people, You know, I, I honestly think that Reiki, uh, which I don't do, but I think it's interesting that people will respond and say it feels, it feels helpful, is probably doing some of that, right? The, the changing in the, in the local frequencies, which are altered by light.
1: Love that. Um, I'll link in the show notes a few articles that I have about about what you're what you're talking about. If people Please are do. interested, yeah, yeah. In the beginning of the show, you mentioned. Oh, I think this may be off air. Like some of the new interests that you may have or learning new things. Um, what What are some of those new interests that you have?
2: The things we just discussed. Okay. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in. I, I'm I'm starting to, and I I don't necessarily know that I can even speak confidently enough about this to even go into anything on it today, but really what I would consider the biophysics of organisms. So how the interaction of light and shape and structure and water and fluid dynamics, pressure changes, how do those influence how we move, but also how do we influence how they, how we experience the world? Uh, I think that what we're kind of coming up against right now on a global scale is our defiance of nature. And so really, I guess, what am I into? I'm into nature because it precedes all of our man-made laws. And, you know, you can defy man-made laws for a while. uh, And some, I would argue are ridiculous, but you cannot defend, you cannot deny or defy the laws of nature. And so I'm really trying to figure out what are these fundamental laws and how do they apply to the human organism? Uh, Because not only for the sake of my other, for my patients, but also my own sake, like where in my life am I denying the laws of nature? And what is the cost of doing, of doing that? You know, some probably is a very low cost. I think other aspects are, are the ultimate cost.
1: Now, is this like diving into maybe the realm of, you know, quantum biology? Have you...
2: Yeah, I'm, that's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all teed up on that, but uh, I haven't really, I, I, I have to, I have to kind of prepare myself, I think for that.
1: Yeah. Ar- Aaron Davis, who, um, I don't know what I want to call him, but he owns a business. Yeah. yeah um, I know who Aaron Davis okay, is. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he He's awesome. And he's you know, coming out with amazing information about mm-hmm. oxygen and he uses the MOXIE. And he has dived really deep into quantum biology. I saw him even give an uh, amazing presentation on it. Um, and I've kind of dived down a rabbit hole many, many years ago about reading like book after book of quantum biology. And it just gives you like a completely different perspective about life in general and what it means to be human and in our actions.
2: Absolutely. I fe- in fact, I think that, what, what I think I'm kind of, I, I don't know if struggling is the right word, is that almost everything we think we know is wrong.
1: Yes. And how, like you mentioned before, like exchanging energy frequencies and, and light. And you know, is that the definition of love? Like, is that how we, we feel love with someone?
2: I would say that I def- I would define love as the the expansion of the self to include another. So in that definition, absolutely, you're sharing mm-hmm. quantum energy.
1: Yeah. That's and why it, I mean, use
2: the word the field because I think that's really what we're talking about. And some people have a very small field, some people have a very expanded field.
1: <laughs> it's funny that you say that cuz my favorite book of all time is called The Field. By yeah, by um McGrath. Lynn
2: is is it Who's that McTaggart? McTaggart yeah,.
1: yeah, yeah. Me, yeah that it's just the most uh, incredible book I've ever read because it it changed changed my perspective on, on a lot of things, especially mm-hmm. about human interaction. yes,
0: it makes me think about just this notion of psychological resilience and you know probably those people with fields that only encompass their very narrow souls that don't meaningfully expand to a partner or their parents or a pet or a kid or two. It, it, you know, it seems to me like at least in like a visual sense or a very kind of superficial sense, it's like that would be a person that if something were to disrupt things that were happening narrowly within their life, wouldn't be perturbed because the field at large won't be that perturbed. It's just one thing happening to one person. Can you say more on that? I'm not sure I follow. I'm not yeah, sure I follow. it's well, I think there's, it's been well established that like people that have solid familial connections are going to be more resistant to like depression, anxiety, oh, sure. like mental illness yeah, in general. Yeah, right. Yeah. But, but like they're, they're just, and I know for me personally, it's like when things are good with, with my partner. And then over the past couple of years, like with, with my dog, Molly, it's like, I, you know, I, I can kind of roll with the punches a lot easier. Like oh, absolutely. If, if there are things happening to me in particular with my business or work I'm doing on the side or something like that, it doesn't feel like, I am all there is. And it just, you know, to hear you two talk about like this notion of like the expansion of an energy field, it, it like that. It feels like the words that describe that phenomenon.
2: Well, and think about why, for example, we feel so rejuvenated when we're in nature, because now we have expanded this kind of very isolated, um, system that is probably over synchronized, you know, we are always synchronizing to the, 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 the electromagnetic radiation in our, in our environment, right? Which of course includes light. And so if my, if my, my experience is, is mostly non-native meaning man-made EMFs, right? So whether it's coming from electrical fields or my Wi-Fi router or the light, you know, the fluorescent lights in my building, that's going to create a very disynchronous and very narrow range of, of, um, you know, frequency, right? If I go into nature, I'm now experience all experiencing all of it. I'm getting the sun's rays. I'm getting the, the, the ions from the earth. I'm getting all these different species of trees and birds. You know, I just saw this interesting study that, that showed that the, the more birds you have in your local environment, the happier you are. So people don't know that necessarily that they have more birds equals happiness. They just know they feel happier. And the more species of bird, not just, I don't mean more birds. I mean, more species of birds, rather, the the greater diversity of species of birds, the more your, your body likes that. Right. And probably some of it has to do with just the the beautiful uh, songs that they sing. But I also think that that diversity of energy and um it, that, that diversity of energy, we when we're exposed to that, we connect to it on a deep level. That's why I think this, this whole pandemic business has been really, really hard on people is it's unmasking the tremendous isolation we already felt and how fragile and invariant that system was already. And then you take away the few people or the few things that they liked to do to help them manage. And now it becomes untenable. And that's why you're seeing such a, Tremendous rise in, in mental and physical health, irrespective of the actual um, illness. So yeah,
0: I'm sorry. We we talked about this before, and, and you touched on this, but you know we're we're humans alive in twenty twenty one. Technology is impossible to escape entirely. And when we were talking about you know my predisposition to just want to work with people in in person and not and not via Zoom, I'm just wondering like how you think through the benefits of the technology that we have in 2021 and then how you recommend for yourself clients and others uh, avoiding the pitfalls like in terms of actual like day in day out tactics of use of
2: electric uh, of of technology
0: yeah like ju- yeah just in general <laughs>
2: yeah well i think i i like to to think about it similar to the quote about uh you know you're there, there i can't i think it was Einstein always gets all these quotes. So, you know, who knows if he actually said this, but you know, the mind is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. I think about technology is the same way. Technology is a wonderful servant, but a horrendous master. And most people, well, I shouldn't say most people, Uh, an alarming number of people have made technology their master rather than their servant. So how do I mean by that? If you can't put your phone down, (laughs) even though you know, you should, it is your master, not your servant. Right? So how do I, how do I talk to clients? Cause I talk a lot about this actually with clients. Here's what I tell them, use it as little as possible. I mean, you know, set timers, delete all social media apps from your phone. I don't, the only time I get on Instagram is to go, is on my desktop. If I want to post something, I download it onto my phone, I post it and then I delete it. Um, and, and I think, our ability to have a better relationship with technology is directly correlated to your ability to make an impact. Inversely correlated, by the way. So the more you are on technology, I think the less likely, the less human you are. So we have a decision to make. Do we really want to be, do we we want to use technology in a way that serves us or do we want technology to, do we want to be serving technology? And I think that we're, I think we're approaching a bit of a fork in the road where you have a camp of people that really want to be uh, owned by technology. And you can see more and more of that coming. And then you can see people that want less and less to do with it. I think, you know, like anything else, there's probably a happy medium, but I try to use it as little as possible to do the things that I wanna do to make an impact in the lives of others. Um, Just very practically speaking, I don't have, I recommend that people delete all their apps from their phone turn off all notifications. I mean, meaning social media apps from their phone, turn off all notifications, never watch the news, ever watch the news. Uh, I recommend that people limit their amount of TV that they watch. If they do watch TV, it's only a show that they, you know, choose to watch versus something that's just on. So never have the TV on in the background. Uh, I think, you know, it's probably a good idea to never have the TV on at all. Uh, But you know, that's probably seen as severe by some. And then, you know, certainly you want to make sure that you're preserving your your sleep. Sleep is, it needs to be preserved. So that means all electronics out of the bedroom um, and and try to minimize artificial light at night.
0: And I know, and for, for the listeners, if um, if all of that sounded kind of like, you know, just paralysis by a deluge of information or instruction, the, the two that I've found most impactful, at least as as useful starting off points disabling all notifications and then switching uh your phone screen to black and white instead of color i I found to be incredibly helpful because there's i mean there is teams of engineers with all of these tech companies that are trying to make this as addictive as visually stimulating you know as just impossible to put down as possible absolutely
2: yeah Yeah. no question it's all by design it's they're no dummies
1: yeah i've completely found that i i have no notifications on my phone besides text messages. But, you know, during COVID, basically, social media has become a tool for my business to grow, Mm -hmm. right? So I I found myself, you know, investing more of my time in that, um, which I try to do make an effort to part ways with it as much as possible. Um, In relation to COVID, you mentioned a few things in terms of, how it has possibly changed human behavior. How much do you see COVID's impact on human behavior, um, in leading to the, the future and like completely changing um, aspects of us as people. And I, I've personally found like I I've, these extremes, right? These extremes of fear on both sides, um, and it's been it's been kind of a fascinating experience to see how people are. You know, experiencing the world during this time.
2: It is. And it's hard to know, um, you know, it's hard to know where, where things are, are going to go. Right. Um, I, I think that from my perspective, the one, the, the, the biggest concern I have, uh, from a professional perspective is the looking at other people as a source of danger. Right. So these kind of vectors of illness and, and, um, we know that, you know, we've been on this planet for homo sapiens as for 200,000 years and certainly long, you know, before that, you know, preceding species. And we have always been in close physical contact with each other. And we cannot defy that long-term. Maybe that makes sense short-term, but long-term that's, that's, that's a losing proposition. And so I think, you know, coming back to the things that we've talked about before about the ability to attune and be with another physical presence is only going to be more important. And one of the things that I can say just anecdotally is during this whole uh, pandemic, I have been um, busier than ever because people are, they're not doing well. And, and we have to really start to look at, how can we make logical choices about risk? And you know, so what are the risks of, of social distancing and what are the risks of not? And, and each person has to decide that for themselves based on their own situation. And I hope that they can make that decision for them. So I hope they're given the opportunity to make that decision for themselves, but there, there has to be, I think a, a time where, where we're going to have to be able to come back together as species, because we are regu- we literally are regulated by the presence of other people.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So, you know, yeah. Yeah. So I, I worry about that changing human behaviors is, is looking at people as sources of danger versus instead of sources of safety. And the the sad part about it is we weren't good at this before the pandemic. No. We already saw people as as a source of danger, yes, rather than a source of safety and this has only amplified that. And I think that's why you're seeing this this uh you know epidemic of of mental and physical illness you're not related to covid spiking up.
1: Yeah, it, the thing I've I've noticed the most is, you know, during this covid time I I've, I've moved to like an apartment complex and um Not that people want to do this before, but no one will literally look at you when you pass them in the hallway and like, or say anything. (laughs) And, you know, I try to over exaggerate it and like say hi kind of loudly to make sure that they hear me. But it's, it's been the most fascinating thing, especially even when I'm out on a trail in the woods, same exact thing. um,
2: It's a bizarre thing, isn't it?
1: It's a very bizarre thing, and uh, honestly, you you can feel it physically when that happens to you, especially over and over.
0: I agree, I agree. It makes me think of. um, I've heard a lot of people that are way smarter than me talk about the value of physical exercise that involves like non-sexual human contact, right? So like Mm -hmm. dance or combatives, where you're working with another person, but you're in close proximity and how that, like the benefits of those activities far transcend just the physical activity you do when you're doing the activity.
2: Well, and I think a lot of that comes to, you know, the things that we've talked about, but also spatial pragmatics and really understanding how we orient our body in space. If we we don't know where we are accurately in space, then we're gonna be pretty stressed physiologically right? It's a stressful thing to not know where you are in relation to other people. And, and I think one of the beauties of, like you said, non-sexual physical contact or physical work like combatives, dance, um, is, is this constant updating of where do my boundaries end and yours begin and constantly shifting and changing it. Again, it comes back to variability, variability of my personal boundaries and look at how our boundaries have changed in a very short period of time you know, uh, you know, less than a year people being, you know, in the same room as you is seen by some, many as threatening versus welcoming. Right. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And how that changes, you know, um, our, our nervous system and our, our sensory systems.
1: Yeah. I think about, uh, you know, a few years ago, if I was living in an apartment by myself, you know, maybe the first couple months I would have been okay. But by now, I I don't know what I would have done if that was just me in an apartment instead of like, um, with my fiance. So it just completely changed the experience.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. It makes me think about something that we've talked about before, like this, this need to numb, right? This need to not feel that, that crushing sense of isolation. And I think you know, I think a lot of people do it with drugs or alcohol or electronics, like we've talked about, but then like a lot of the people that end up working with one of us in some way or another do it via incredibly intense physical exertion right. and society at large sees these people and applauds them, right? Like, oh, this per- this person's run 30 marathons in three years. Like this person is a hero. This, this person is someone to be exalted without an appreciation of the fact that, they might not be doing it for the reasons that you think they're doing it for. And it's not to take anyone anything away from anyone that does something like that, um, but I think something along you know my own personal journey, like just realizing that someone that can run a hundred mile weeks for five years is not automatically a good human being. Like someone that can run a three fifty five mile can be a a piece of shit human being. Like mm-hmm. those things can very easily coexist.
2: Well, I think it's it's um, it speaks to how narrow if we, if, if we only judge people based on one variable uh, that's really not an overall, that's not a really an accurate picture of how the, that person actually is in the world. And, you know, I think that it speaks to also how we are overwhelmed. Our senses are overwhelmed, but our sensitivity is, you know, bankrupt, right? So we're overwhelming our senses, And so when you think about high intensity, physical exertion, it's, it's loud, you know, in terms of the intensity and and the stimulation is, is high, but the sensitivity of that sometimes is, is, is very low. Now I will say that I, there all also is the alternative in which, and this is folks, I see this a lot too, which is they have in one or more channels have incredibly overactive sensitivity. They're overwhelmed by even basic, daily functions because it feels too intense for them. Right. And so, and so that's a different kind of of thing, but what we find is that not all channels are are kind of functioning, right? So they may be overwhelmed in the tactile or, or the auditory uh, fields, but really underwhelmed in proprioceptive or interoceptive. And so again, if you're thinking about really hammering running that is while certainly builds sensory sensitive can can build sensory sensitivity it's only in certain aspects right you're not getting that wide variety and variability across the systems
0: do you find yourself giving so as a clinician in your practice do you find yourself giving similar interventions to those that are over sensitive as under sensitive? Like, do you find yourself giving the same? And I'm not putting words in your mouth, like meditation or breath work? Um, I very rarely
2: give meditation as
0: a thing that I do.
2: um, Because I find that that's actually overwhelming for most people. Um, Do so the question is, do I give the same interventions regardless if they're higher, higher, low on the sensitivity scale, or similar? The answer to that is it depends. I have some people where we're going to do really low threshold activity. And then there's some people that I may do higher level threshold activity, depending on how they're, how they're managing. So for example, if I have a person who comes in and there are like this, you know, high intensity CrossFit athlete, and they're lacking the capacity to, uh, move without tremendous amounts of effort because that's literally what they've been training to do. Right. So they're using high threshold strategies to move. I want to get them more towards the middle. I don't want them to necessarily be all the way on the bottom end of low threshold. And we're doing like really, really, really slow and subtle stuff because it's not going to fit their mindset at all. So If we think about this narrow threshold, I'm just going to take it on the bottom end of their threshold, not necessarily the bottom end of someone else's threshold. So, you know, we may do a, what feels like what would for for some patients might be a a highly overwhelming sensory exercise um, for the uh, CrossFit athlete. I'm just using it as an example, not paying on CrossFit that that might be something that feels very low intensity for them, but would be relatively speaking, very high intensity for somebody else. So uh, an example that I would give you would be, um, I may do a positional breathing exercise for a a CrossFit person that just gets them to feel their heels on the ground. It it helps them to feel some posterior expansion. Okay. And that may be the, the totality of what we do in terms of, down regulation for that session. I would not also ask that person to sit in a quiet room for 60 minutes and meditate because the juxtaposition is so great they can't manage that. Do you It's too much. Now, do I want to maybe get them that, towards that maybe, maybe not, it depends on their goals.
0: Yeah, that was going to be my exact question. Like, in your mind, is the ideal human being one that could meditate silently for 60 minutes and yet also, you know, run 100 meters all out?
2: Well, I think meditating can be anything, right? Meditating, I look at it as just the ability to be acutely aware of what you're doing while you're doing it without being lost in thought or judgment. So. Do I want, but do I, do I want that person who, you know, is the high level CrossFit athlete to also be able to sit and meditate in an ideal world? Maybe, but like I said, my ultimate goal with people is unobstructed self-expression. So it depends on what it is that they want to do. And it's not for me to necessarily, it's, it's this mix between what I think they need and what they think they need and coming to a common ground between that. Um, so maybe it doesn't look like 60 minutes, maybe the best that we can hope for is that they can sit and do five minutes of the, the repositioning, uh, respiration exercises that I give them. And that's a win, right? That's their meditation. For other people, it might be I want them to do, you know, uh, an hour, hour and a half of really slow, mindful work. Rarely does that occur.
0: I I had something you mentioned before when we were talking about technology, um, you know, the, this pattern that people have of just watching TV mindlessly, you know, just kind of laying on the couch and watch whatever's on, like from a physiologic standpoint, that seems like it would be something that would be helpful to the system in that, like, you're not doing anything is, I mean, the. So I guess, you know, is what you're saying that the ability to lay down quietly and do nothing is like, that's sort of the lost art and the people that are high strung all the time, they need to be cultivating a little bit more of that, but without the distraction of, you know, TV or or music or Instagram or something.
2: Well, I think the operative word here is distraction. Yeah. So it's about, you know, the neuroimmune system is constantly changing right? So that's the fundamentals of, of plasticity, right? The nervous system and immune, and immune system work together to change, you know, to, to lay down new patterns or to maintain the old ones. So the real question is, I think that the issue with, with TV is, are you learning something new? If you are not which how could you be if you're watching TV, even if it's a documentary, it's not learning something new about yourself. So while yes, it may not be stressful, it's also not necessarily reparative. I, I think we have to look beyond the, the idea of just like, oh, if you just remove stress from your life for an hour, you're going to be good. I don't think that that's enough, frankly. I think we have to be in a active we have to be learning while we're we're doing that. And it doesn't mean it needs to be inherently stressful, but we have to have enough activation and and attention and awareness while doing any activity in order for it to become um, kind of learned. So TV is, it's too mindless. It may not be an active stressor, but it just removing an active stress doesn't necessarily make you better at managing it.
1: That's fair. What, what are some things that, that you do um, within your time? Kind of the typical someone comes home from work and watches TV until they go to bed.
2: What do I do instead? Yeah. I just watch like three hours of TV. No, I'm kidding. Um, uh, so, a couple of different things. One is I'm definitely a big fan of journaling. Nice. Um, I am a big fan of play. So, I play with my dog. And I, my wife and I play, and we talk about our day and we talk about, you know, whatever's going on with her or whatever's going on with me. Um, I, since, you, you know, I have a really wonderful, you know, it's been a little bit more challenging to do this because of the, uh, the shorter days, but being outside,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, is great. And luckily I live in a pretty temperate climate, so it's, it's easy to do that. Um, and then certainly, I you know, I definitely catch up on work-related things when I get home. Uh, but a big therapeutic thing for me, too, is cooking. So, okay. you know, actually preparing that. And, you know, I think cooking is a wonderful sensory motor exercise. To put together ingredients that create their own distinct flavors that aren't there just in each you know, how, how different flavors come together to create new flavors, right, is amazing. But also just the preparation of, you know, the act of using a knife and not cutting your hands off, right? And be able to slice things in different ways and to, to smell, you know, meat as it's cooking. I mean, those are, those are amazingly powerful things to improve embodiment and attunement. I also think that it's really important to improve. I think part of the reason we have such a GI dysfunction in this country. One of many reasons, um, is that a lot of people don't actually prepare their own food and preparing your own food, I think starts digestion long before you've actually eaten that food.
0: Okay. I love that. And, uh, someone that we talked to last week, Todd Bumgardner who I think owns a and conditioning facility in Virginia. He, he mentioned we were, we asked him the workout question and he mentioned, uh, like, he did like 50 minutes of lateral sled rags or something like that. And, and Michelle was quick to be like, you do music or you do like nothing at all. And he, he said he would do nothing or like really discordant jazz. And it's funny, like cook, cooking is something that I absolutely love to do. And I cook almost every day. And ever since he said that I, I haven't been cooking with music. I haven't been cooking with a podcast. I've just been trying to like experience the sensation of chopping and the smells and, yeah, it just gets me thinking about what you mentioned, like meditation can be anything.
1: Yeah, and you know, a big thing I picked up from you, kind of like low hanging fruit to make me just more aware of things is, you know, not just putting music or a podcast on, when I go for a walk outside. Now it's, I live, you know, right down the street from a reservation. It's like, look up, look at the tallest part of the trees, look at long distances. And you talked about dogs Bring my best buddy along with me. <laughs> makes it even better, uh, but just having those experiences quiet. And I think I used to go for walks all the time to, to think about things and I would even take notes on my phone. And now it's like, okay, I'm not going to think about you know my u- upcoming podcast with Seth. I'm just going to kind of take this in as I go through the woods, just little things. Absolutely. Seth, last question we always ask people, big, huge hitter is what's one thing you've changed your mind on completely in the last five years?
2: Well, I think the, the easy answer would be, and I'll, I can be more specific, but the easy answer would be literally almost everything. If I think about how I was five years ago to how I am now, I don't think most people that, that haven't been around me in the last five years would necessarily even recognize me as a person. Um, but I think, the biggest thing that I have completely changed my mind about is the the tremendous capacity that people have to change, as well as the tremendous capacity people have to remain the same. It's really the plastic paradox, uh, and there, and he talks about this in Deutsch. Norman Deutsch talks about this in his book, "The Brain That Changes Itself." Mm-hmm. which is the same neuroimmune processes that allow us to m- make unbelievable changes in our nervous system are the same principles that allow us to get deeper and deeper into our own system and so it's it's kind of what we cho- how we choose to approach it can we use these powers of inherent in our biological systems to to engender tremendous change or do we want to use them to get deeper and deeper in what we're already stuck in so I would say that that's changed because I don't think five or 10 years ago, I really thought people could change. Fair. And now I think people absolutely can, but not everyone will.
1: Now, has this personal change affected your relationships with other people positively or negatively in terms of you going through changes and then maybe they not saying the same?
2: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's given me more, one more compassion for people because- I'm realizing that they're maybe just not ready for change or that that doesn't work for them. It's not my, it's not my job to tell them what they should or shouldn't change. Right. So when I see people not changing and I am, maybe that's for the best for them. Right. It doesn't necessarily mean that me changing is a great thing. Um, But I also would say that when a person, it is a challenging path to walk when you fundamentally Uh, choose to deprogram the stuff that you've been programmed into, you know, your patterns that you've developed. uh, It can be really challenging because think about how much of our life is wrapped up in those patterns and personalities that we have. And so, yeah, you lose, you know, you lose relationships, but you gain other ones.
1: That's fair. I hope we only have a few more minutes, but I just like briefly want to, maybe provide some context with people and talk about my personal experience with you really quickly, give you like two cents about it. Um, You know, I saw you present at a seminar you did. Uh, I don't even remember the year, to be honest with you. And we worked together shortly after that. And my kind of two biggest (laughs) things were I had chronic like stomach pain. For a very long time, and you know, I usually lived in—excuse me—I usually worked in like high-stress environments. Um, Division one collegiate athletics, just everything's going on. And I currently was in an environment, work environment, that provided me a lot of stress and not a lot of en- enjoyment. And I, I also was into kind of very high sensation-seeking exercise, and there probably wasn't a lot that was going to pull me out of that at that point. Um, and I just got these absolutely debilitating stomach pains, um, mostly every single night. And then also I had very high sensation of tightness from basically, you know, sports bras, if I was wearing them throughout the day and it was overwhelming for me of these sensations. So, you know, I, I kind of sought you out and, uh, you know, after a few months, you know, I removed myself from that work environment. There's obviously some other life changes that occurred, but, you know, I haven't had a stomach ache or pain like that since. So that has just been absolutely fascinating to me because we talk about these points of intervention. And I saw out a lot of other practitioners, mostly in the nutrition realm and, um, you know, nothing really made a difference. Um, and so I want to obviously thank you for that, but can you give, maybe give your, perspective about those bodily sensations and they may be points of intervention that help me self-regulate through those things.
2: Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Um, so I think about the gut as, well, let's put it this way. You cannot, no matter how great one's nutrition is, good luck integrating and digesting that food. If your nervous system feels like it's in danger. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times people are trying to se- solve a regulation problem with, with nutrition. And that's not to mean that nutrition doesn't matter. It's critical, right? But we have to first create the, the environment for appropriate digestion. And in order for us to do that, we have to feel safe because our body, the, it's very metabolically costly to digest food. And so if I've got to devote those resources towards self-protection and self-preservation, I'm not gonna digest that food. And so as a result, I'm going to be stuck in this state in which I'm shoving food into a system that's not ready to be eat, to, to, to consume it, right? Um, and so you know, the way I work with that is, is that we have to really start to pay attention to what are the signals that are coming from your GI system up to your brain, right? Mostly via vagus nerve, cranial nerve 10, What are those signals? And then can we pay attention to them without trying to make them go away? And what we find is this is where self-regulation occurs, which is the system wants to fix it. It just hasn't been given the opportunity to understand what are these messages? And can I just be with them? Can we apply some gentle nudges in the form of exercises to engender some new sensations that signal to the brain This is not dangerous. This is actually safe. So stimulating the GI system through hands-on movement, different breathing exercises that we can do, which is of course, that stimulates the GI system, Um, changing the rotation, you know, the gut and the liver and the spleen and the stomach, they all have Mm -hmm. to rotate and spin and move with every breath in and out. So can we change that spin? Can we change the rate of of that spin? And when we do that, the brain says, ah, it's okay.
1: And, and you mentioned uh, compression and expansion before. And if someone's feeling this overwhelming sensation of squeezing through like their rib cage, that's greatly going to affect their, their movement.
2: How could it not? Yeah. Right. I mean, you've got basically your guts are a muscular tube mm-hmm. full of water. So if, if you have a high volume of, of compression or you have a, a amount of compression across a fixed volume You're going to have, something has to give, right? If I squeeze a pop can, nothing's going to move through that very well. So we, you know, there's the neurology of working with the GI system, but there's also the mechanics of working with it. A GI system that's overly squeezed is not one that's going to be very, feeling very relaxed and not one that's going to be able to effectively and efficiently move the food through it.
1: Absolutely. And I think after that experience as well, I don't think, you know, Tim and I have talked about this for a long time. We've been good friends. Um, There was a point probably after I saw you where I was, you know, willing to give up, not give up, but like reduce and kind of completely change how I was training in terms of exercise. Whereas now I do a lot more low heart rate work and less Mm -hmm. high intensity aspects. And all these types of changes that really I've extracted from you have been, Extremely useful in my life, and so I highly suggest anyone listening to this. If the question, like, or seek out different points of interventions for for things that um, may make a huge difference in your health and day to day life. Totally agree. Um, Two last things here,
2: and I do have to run here in the next couple of minutes. Just FYI.
1: Perfect. Okay. So, any other book recommendations that you recommend to listeners, and you know. The few books that I've heard from you, such as Climate, A New Story, and The Hidden Life of Trees have greatly changed my perspective towards a lot of things. Any other things you want to mention to listeners?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, so I have on my website, uh, I have a whole book list, which actually needs updating. I have about 40 books behind. So I need to (laughs) update a bunch of books on there. Uh, A couple of books I can recommend for people that, that really want to learn more about some of the things that we've talked about. One is I always recommend The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel, Bessel van der Kolk. It's a great book. Um, I recommend anything written by Moshe Feldenkrais. So my personal favorite of his is The Potent Self, but he, uh, Body and Mature Behavior is also a really excellent book. I, um, <clears throat> I personally really uh, like uh, I'm reading a. I just finished a book right now that I think has been phenomenal, called "The Invisible Rainbow," which is the yes. influence of of electricity on uh, on human experience, which is just fun f- uh, phenomenal. Um, and and, and and there's a really interesting book that kind of precedes that called "The Body Electric," by Robert O. Becker, which is a really good book as well. Mm-hmm. And um, anything that Gerald Pollack writes on water.
1: Fair. I'll link so, those all in the show notes. Um, yeah. Can you tell people where they can go to learn more about you or?
2: Yeah. So you can visit my website at sethoberst.com. Uh, and you can get in touch with me if you you know want to work together or, you know, just learn. Uh, I also have, you know, pre-COVID was teaching a course in person. I hope to bring that back. That's also listed on my website. I'm not sure where that stands, but if you are interested in taking it or hosting it, in the future, you can certainly reach out to me that way. And then, you know, you can find me on, on social media, uh, Instagram, I think is Seth at Seth Oberst. Facebook is, I think I have a Facebook page at Seth Oberst and then, um, uh, Twitter as well. Awesome.
1: All right. Thank you so much for your time, Seth. Really appreciate how generous you are.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it. It's been fun. It's always good to to see you guys.
1: (laughs) Absolutely.
0: Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool, too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.